Hello and welcome to Leftist Reading, a podcast where I'm a leftist and I read things. Today we're continuing with Russia and Revolution and we're going to be finishing off a chapter that's been examining what the Russian society looks like as the Bolsheviks pivot to a new economic policy which is more conciliatory to capitalism broadly, but while still trying to pave the way towards a communist future. So, let's finish out the chapter. Governing the Countryside The revolution had caused the village to turn in on itself, and the commune was, in some respects, stronger than it had been in the last years of Tsarism. It had lost its tax-gathering function, yet was still central in determining issues of land allocation and utilization. Younger men challenged the dominance of older men in the village gathering, and women over 18 now had the right to participate in it, although it was usually only Red Army wives and widows who did so. Generally, peasants preferred to transact business through the village gathering, and the executives of township Soviets often preferred to deal directly with the gathering rather than go via the rural Soviet. That said, after a shaky start, the rural Soviets did begin to revive after the devastation of the Civil War. In early 1920s, the alienation of the peasants from the regime was palpable, evinced in the fact that only 22% of rural voters and only 14% of women, actually took part in Soviet elections in 1922. Indeed, rural elections had to be called off in 1924, and the Face to the Countryside campaign launched to revitalize the rural Soviets and ensure that they were polite, attentive, listening to the voice of the peasantry. Footnote 92. As a result, the percentage taking part in Soviet elections rose to 47% in 1926 to 27. Footnote 93. The youth who doesn't shave, with a record of service in the Red Army and a limited primary education, was the archetypical representative of the rural Soviets. In 1922, only 1% of rural Soviet members were female although this rose to nearly 12% by 1927. Young and poor, and seen by many as ignorant of farming, the lower Soviet personnel did not command much respect. They compensated for their poor salaries by corruption and embezzlement. In the Tersk region of the Northern Caucasus, the Party Control Commission reported that, quote, Drunkenness has infected all reasonable officials, and its forms exceed all limits. Debauches, scandals, consorting with prostitutes, end quote, footnote 94. Complaints about local Soviet officials were legion, yet it would be a mistake to assume that peasants universally hated these upstarts. Certainly, they disliked bribery and excessive rigor on the part of officials, but sometimes they commented favorably on the absence of knobs, Barry, in local government, and on the fact that the Soviets were led by, quote, our people whom we can scold and have a cigarette with, end quote, footnote 95. By contrast, there was mainly indifference on the part of villagers to the county Soviets, which embraced urban as well as rural Soviets. Quote, we have no objection to government, we need authority, but we don't care how it's organized. End quote. 
Barely a quarter of members of the executives at this level were peasants, compared with 44% who were employees, mostly professionals who had once worked for the Zemstvos. Footnote 96. In the unprecedentedly free election of 1925, communists were voted out of Soviets in some areas, and widespread calls were made for the establishment of peasant unions. In 1921, Osinski proposed that a peasant union be permitted under the, quote, ideological and organizational hegemony of the RKPB, end quote. But Lenin dismissed the suggestion peremptorily. Footnote 97. This was possibly because the idea of peasant unions was one much touted by the SRs in emigration, and because peasant congresses that took place in southern Ukraine between 1921 and 1923 had an anti-Bolshevik complexion. Footnote 98. In spring 1927, Genrik Yagoda, deputy chair of OGPU, reported that the initiative group to create an all-Russian peasant union had been arrested. Although we cannot rule out the involvement of emigre organizations, the demand for peasant unions, and a few seem actually to have materialized, arose spontaneously, reflecting the sense on the part of the peasants that they were entitled to the same rights to organize as workers. Footnote 99. For the political police, however, such demands were a sign that kulaks were in the ascendancy. Meanwhile, the proportion of peasants deprived of the vote fell from 1.4% in 1924 to 25 to 1% in 1925 to 26, but then rose to 3.3% in November 1926. Footnote 100. As a counterweight to the kulaks, poor peasants were encouraged to form separate organizations within the village to influence the makeup of the Soviets. In February 1927, OGPU reported that, in Ukraine, North Caucasus, and Siberia, leadership in the Soviets had passed to organized poor peasants, but it now complained that middle peasants were being ignored. Footnote 101. One of the many reasons why the communists felt insecure was that party penetration of rural areas was extremely limited. Party control of rural local government was secure only down to the county level, where already, by 1922, communists accounted for 82% of members of the executives. During the 1920s, the party made rapid headway in increasing its influence in township executive committees. Communists accounting for 48% of members as early as 1924. However, in that year, only 7% of ordinary members of rural Soviets were communists. Even by 1928, there was only one party cell for every 26 rural centers of population. Footnote 102. Fairly typical of peasant attitudes, was Gadishi in Novgorod, where older villagers disliked the communists. Quote, they oppose God, many are Jews, and they serve in the communes. End quote. I.e., dominate the Soviet administration. Younger members of the village, however, might well view them as, quote, advanced people, supporters of enlightenment, enemies of darkness and ignorance. End quote. Footnote 103. 
peasants were far from being a cowed mass and, to some extent, the regime encouraged them to speak out. Many did so in the relatively traditional form of petitions, appeals, complaints, or denunciations to higher authority. Tens of thousands of petitions were sent to Lenin and to Mikhail Kalinin, president of the Soviet CEC and one of the few party leaders to hail from a peasant background. Others were sent directly to institutions such as the CEC and the Commissariat of State Control. Petitioners were not afraid to express their views boldly, and there is little of the self-abasement characteristic of petitioners in Tsarist times. Petitioners, moreover, were usually able to deploy the language of the new order, however opportunistically. Quote, Comrade Lenin bequeathed the following important teaching. Do not oppress the toiling people because the Tsar autocrats flayed them enough. But now local officials oppress us as much as the Tsars. End quote. Footnote 104. It is foolhardy to generalize about the political attitudes of 100 million peasants, yet to judge from their intercepted letters, it seems that there was a minority of enthusiastic supporters and a minority of foes, and that the attitudes of the great majority were shifting and contradictory. Footnote 105. Throughout the period, the majority expressed disgruntlement at the slowness with which their conditions were improving, and grumbles about such matters as taxes and the price of industrial manufactures were legion. Tension between the peasants and the regime eased greatly from 1923, but it began to increase again from 1926. A sample of 407 letters from peasants to Red Army soldiers intercepted by military censors between 1924 and 1925, shows that almost two-thirds were positively disposed to the central government, but that virtually all complained about the local Soviets. Analysis of letters sent to the peasant newspaper between 1924 and 1928, most of which were never published, suggests that the principal concerns of peasants were taxation, the price and poor quality of manufactures, fleecing by middlemen, kulak exploitation, the eight-hour day enjoyed by workers, and the better cultural facilities in the towns. Underlying these complaints was the peasants' sense that they were second-class citizens in the new Soviet order. In 1926, letters offering a negative assessment of the central government, 28% of the total, for the first time outnumbered those offering a positive one, 23% of the total. The leitmotif of these was that peasants continued to live in great hardship, unshod and unclothed, puffed up with hunger, mainly due to taxes and unfair pricing of agricultural and industrial goods. One letter from 100 poor peasants inveighed against the party leadership, quote, Communists and commissars, you have all forgotten 1917. You parasites sit in your warm berths drinking our blood. We may rot for the cause of justice, but we will wipe you out, you deceivers of the people. End quote. Footnote 106. 
However, the majority of peasants, though disgruntled, appear not to have been deeply hostile to the government, and a sizable minority positively approved the communist ideal in principle, seeing in it an extension of the values of the collectivism, equality, and mutual aid that were inherent in the commune. The fact that so many took advantage of the opportunity to express their opinions to the government suggests that they expected it to live by the ideals it proclaimed. The widespread hatred of the Bolsheviks that had erupted in the countryside in 1920-21 had abated. This was, in large part, because the state was no longer violently intervening to seize grain, and because, despite persisting economic difficulties, peasant living standards had much improved. The regime, however, felt that its authority was far from secure in the countryside. This anxiety was, in many respects, incongruous. Certainly, the influence of the party was extremely limited, and the reliability of the rural Soviets could not be guaranteed. Nevertheless, despite the general weakness of the party state in rural areas, the state actually penetrated more deeply into peasant society than its Tsarist predecessor had done. Moreover, the boundary between state and society was now more porous than it had been when the peasants constituted a separate estate and official administration barely went beneath the county town. Soviets existed at the township level, and there were opportunities for the politically committed, mainly young men, to be elected to these bodies. Foreign Policy and Promoting Revolution From 1921, Soviet Russia was left isolated as the only socialist state in an international system dominated by the capitalist powers. The Washington Conference in 1921-22 marked the emergence of a new global order dominated by the USA. The conference accorded equal status to the USA and Britain as the only powers with a naval presence throughout the high seas. Japan was granted secondary status because of its power in the Pacific. The Soviet Union had interests in the Pacific, but it was denied representation. Footnote 107. The Treaty of Rapallo in 1922 saw the two pariahs of the Versailles Settlement, Germany and Russia, grant each other most favoured nation status. Georgi Chicharin, Commissar of Foreign Affairs from 1918 to 1930, bent his energies to minimising Soviet isolation by securing bilateral treaties with individual governments, in order to prevent the formation of a coalition hostile to the Soviet Union, and to securing commercial agreements that would give Russia the modern technology she so desperately needed. In 1924, it looked as though isolation might be lessening, as Italy, Britain, and France granted diplomatic recognition to the Soviet Union, and by 1925, 13 governments had recognized the new state. The only new state to join the Soviet fold however, was Mongolia, where the death in 1924 of Bogd Kagan, head of the Buddhist hierarchy, allowed the Mongolian People's Party to seize power. Developments in Europe between 1924 and 1926 turned in a more worrying direction so far as the Soviet Union was concerned. 
as Britain and France mended fences over implementation of the Treaty of Versailles, and France and Germany achieved a rapprochement with the Locarno Treaty of 1925. By 1926, the major capitalist powers had recovered from the economic devastation of the First World War, and from post-war inflation and pre-war levels of output had been surpassed. As its economy boomed, the USA underwrote the stabilization of the capitalist order with extensive loans, pulling against, indeed threatening to sabotage, the efforts of Chicharin to repair relations with the capitalist powers were the efforts of the Comintern to promote revolution throughout Europe. In March 1919, confident that international revolution was just over the horizon, the Bolsheviks called the first congress of a new, third communist international, known as the Comintern, to promote Bolshevik-style revolution on a global scale. The real activity of the Comintern, however, did not begin until the second congress, which took place from 19th of July to 17th of August 1920. According to the constitution approved by the congress, the Comintern was to become the world party of the proletariat, albeit one based on national sections. The Congress ratified, quote, 21 conditions for acceptance into the Communist International, end quote, which forbade the entry of opportunists and wavering elements into national communist parties. The aim was to split the international labor movement by making a decisive break with social democratic parties. National communist parties were to create a cadre of professional revolutionaries who would adopt methods of strict conspiracy and underground work, such as had been pioneered by the Bolsheviks in their struggle against Tsarism, even as they operated openly in the labor movement. The directing organ of the Comintern was its executive committee, ECCI, which was chaired by Zinoviev. Members of the RKPB dominated the ECCI and its organizational apparatus from the first, although some delegates from foreign communist parties were summoned to Moscow to work for the new organization. In November 1926, Zinoviev was removed, having failed in his campaign to have Stalin replaced as general secretary, and a permanent delegation of the RKPB was installed within the ECCI. Constitutionally, this had no status, yet it became the centre where the key decisions concerning cadres, finance and politics were made, decisions that were binding on foreign communist parties. By the time the Third Congress convened from 22nd of June to 12th of July 1921, communist parties had come into existence in 48 countries. The previous year, Lenin had spoken out against the infantile disease of left-wing communism, since many who joined the new movement were unwilling to work with reformists. In December 1921, the ECCI approved the tactic of the United Front, which advocated cooperation with different currents in the labour movement, above all, with social democrats in countries where they had a mass base. The idea was that, through practical struggle, through organizing strikes and demonstrations, the opportunists would be revealed in their true colors. Until 1923, 
hopes ran high that a Bolshevik-style revolution would break out in Germany. But the March Action of 1921, an attempted uprising by the Communist Party in Germany, was a flop. Indeed, the chances of revolution in Germany had been highest in the winter of 1918 to 1919, following Germany's withdrawal from the war. But German workers, soldiers, and sailors had opted for a parliamentary rather than a Soviet system. The 5th Congress of the Comintern, which met from 17th of June to 8th of July 1924, recognized that international capitalist stabilization had occurred, but judged it temporary and partial. Communist parties were forced to face up to more mundane tasks of strengthening trade union and parliamentary work, carrying out anti-war work and organizing solidarity campaigns with colonial peoples. Nevertheless, at the first sign of any political crisis, such as the British general strike in 1926, the ECCI would revert to insurrectionary mode, convinced that militant leadership would lead the European working class to the barricades. Bukharin, who replaced Zinoviev as chairman of the ECCI, penned the program passed by the 6th Congress, which met from 17th July to the 1st of September 1928. This depicted the Soviet Union as, quote, the fatherland of toilers throughout the world, end quote, and insisted that the phase of capitalist stabilization was over, and that capitalism was now entering its third period of development since the First World War. All cooperation with reformist socialists must end, a tactic known as class against class, and the trade union movement must be split by the formation of a red trade union opposition. The new policy had devastating consequences in Germany, where the refusal of the German communists to cooperate with the Social Democrats facilitated the rise of Adolf Hitler. Footnote 108. Whether oriented to the United Front or to class against class, the Comintern consistently failed to understand that workers in the developed capitalist countries were unlikely to risk the short-term benefits of reform, however slender, for the terrible costs of revolution Bolshevik style. This was connected to its failure to understand the very specific conditions that engendered revolution in Russia which, inter alia, included the feebleness of Russian capitalism and the fact that Russia remained the only country in Europe at the start of the 20th century where the peasantry was still a revolutionary force. The Comintern's antennae were better attuned to the prospects of revolution in the colonial and semi-colonial world. The Second Congress of Comintern in July 1920 turned its attention to this subject. Indeed, it was one of Lenin's great insights to realize that nationalist movements of a bourgeois democratic character could play a vital part in the global struggle against capitalism. On the 1st of September 1920, the ECCI called a Congress of the Peoples of the East in Baku, which was attended by some 2,000 delegates, mainly from the Caucasus, Central Asia, and Iran and Turkey. Zinoviev opened the proceedings with a demagogic speech that called on the delegates to take up the, quote, 
task of igniting a general holy war against the English and French capitalists. End quote. A call that was greeted with stormy applause and furious waving of swords. Footnote 109. Karl Radek explained, quote, We are reunited with you by fate. Either we unite with the peoples of the East and speed up the victory of the Western European proletariat, or we will perish and you will be enslaved. End quote. Footnote 110. H.G. Wells, who was in Russia at the time, wrote condescendingly, quote, they held a congress at Baku in which they gathered together a quite wonderful accumulation of white, black, brown, and yellow people, Asiatic costumes, and astonishing weapons. They had a great assembly in which they swore undying hatred of capitalism and British imperialism. End quote. Footnote 111. According to a British intelligence report, a scaffold was erected not far from the congress venue with most lifelike effigies of Lloyd George, French Prime Minister Millerand, and Woodrow Wilson suspended from it, each attired in court dress with a full array of decorations. Footnote 112. Although there were only 55 women present at the Congress, Nassier Hanim from the Turkish Communist Party introduced a resolution that called for equality of the sexes, women's right to education, equality of marriage rights, an end to polygamy, the employment of women in government institutions, and local committees to protect the rights of women. Footnote 113. Enver Passa, architect of the Armenian Genocide, was not allowed to attend the Congress in person, since his presence would have enraged the Armenian delegates and Turkish supporters of Mustafa Kemal Ataturk but a statement from this fleeting Bolshevik ally was read out. Footnote 114. Overcoming considerable controversy, the Second Congress agreed that communist parties in the colonies should ally with bourgeois nationalist movements while retaining their political independence. This was a contradictory policy that came bloodily unstuck in China in 1927, as the National Revolution, led by Chiang Kai-shek and the Nationalist Party, unfolded between 1926 and 1928. Under orders from Moscow, the Chinese Communist Party had reluctantly joined the Nationalist Party in 1923. In 1926, with Stalin's supporters in control of the Comintern, the Chinese Communists were urged to take power by stealth within the Nationalist Party and the National Revolutionary Army and promote social revolution, while ensuring that unity with the right wing of the Nationalist Party was maintained, a strategy that placed the Communists in a suicidal quandary. In April 1927, Chiang Kai-shek crushed his Communist allies, an act that could have spelled the end of the Chinese Communist Party. Rather belatedly, the failed Comintern policy towards China became one of the burning issues at stake in the inner party conflict within the RKPB. Footnote 115. The tension between the Comintern's position of promoting revolution and the needs of the Soviet state to engage in conventional diplomacy with ill-disposed foreign governments dogged foreign relations through the 1920s. Chichirin pressed for a strict separation of diplomacy from Comintern activity, and inveighed against the Comintern willingness to endanger diplomatic relations. 
in early 1927, after a series of statements by Bukharin, he wrote, quote, Would you please stop equating Chiang Kai-shek with Kemalism? It is absolutely ridiculous and spoils our relationship with Turkey. Isn't spoiling our relationship with Germany enough for you? End quote. Footnote 116. In May 1927, the British broke off diplomatic relations with the Soviet Union after evidence of espionage, and relations would not be restored until 1929. By this stage, Chichurin's health was failing, and his influence had ebbed. He had always favoured an orientation towards Germany in foreign policy, as a counter to Britain and France, but his deputy, Maxim Litvinov, who succeeded him, preferred a more balanced approach. All these developments created a culture of anxiety in the Soviet leadership. The theme of capitalist encirclement now became a leitmotif of any discussion of the international question. The number in the political elite who had experience of foreign countries or who could speak foreign languages had declined drastically by the late 1920s, and the number of people authorized to read foreign literature was tiny. Lack of knowledge of foreign countries fueled a highly ideologized view of the capitalist world which, in turn, fed on xenophobic elements within Russian culture. This helps explain both the recurrent fears of invasion, notably the war scare of 1927, and the periodic lurches towards an absurd overestimation of the prospects for revolution in Europe. Footnote 117. Nation building. The idea of a Soviet Union, in which the RSFSR would be one republic among several, was not formalized until 1922. By that date, a series of bilateral treaties between the RSFSR and Ukraine, Belarusia, Georgia, Armenia, Azerbaijan, Bukhara, Khwarezm, Kiva, and the Far Eastern Republic had brought these states into a federation, although the Far Eastern Republic was merged into the RSFSR in November 1922. Christian Rakovsky, the Bulgarian head of the Ukrainian Soviet government and the Georgian Bolsheviks, P.G. Midveni and F.I. Madkarads, favoured a loose arrangement in which the republics would remain foreign entities, whereas Stalin favoured autonomization, which meant absorbing the republics into a Russian-dominated RSFSR within which they would be given a degree of autonomy. Footnote 118. Lenin rejected the latter solution as redolent of the chauvinism of the old regime and insisted on a federation in which non-Russian republics would have equal status with the RSFSR. In a letter to Lenin in September 1922, Stalin frankly opined that during the Civil War, the demonstration of liberalism in relation to the non-Russian peoples had been no more than a game of independence. For Lenin, it was anything but a game. Stalin, however, was fearful that any serious devolution of power to the non-Russian autonomies would weaken the party's dictatorship. The constitution of the USSR, finally ratified on the 31st of January 1924, left no doubt that the ultimate power lay with Moscow, and where non-Russians resisted incorporation, they were duly crushed. In summer 1925, Josef Unschlicht, 
deputy head of the Revolutionary Military Council, led over 7,000 troops, including 8 planes and 22 heavy artillery pieces, to disarm the bandit nests of Chechnya. Within a loosely imperial framework, however, the 1920s saw a unique process of nation-building, as the state entrenched nationality as a major principle of socio-political organization. The 1926 census showed that no fewer than 69 million of the 147 million inhabitants of the Soviet Union were non-Russians, so ethnographers were tasked with classifying and counting ethnic groups, many of which had little understanding of themselves as nations. They eventually distinguished 194 different nationalities. In the 1926 census, those taking the census were instructed to ascribe an ethno-national identity to every person and not accept answers in the question of nationality such as, I am a Muslim. Footnote 119. This was something of a paradox, since the Soviet Union at one level claimed to represent the transcendence of the nation-state and, at various times, deployed a rhetoric of ultimate fusion of the constituent nations of the USSR into a single Soviet people. In practice, however, nationality, once seen as an impediment to socialism, was now viewed positively, as the modality through which the economic, political, and cultural development of the non-Russian peoples would take place. A series of what historian Terry Martin has dubbed affirmative action programs were devised to promote native political elites and intelligentsias and to further the use of national languages. Footnote 120. Having eliminated traditional elites, Moscow aimed to promote members of the indigenous population, mainly young, politically active males from humble backgrounds, to positions of leadership within their respective polities in order to create a social base of support in the non-Russian republics. This process, known as nativization, was designed, in Stalin's words, to produce republics and autonomous regions that were national in form but socialist in content. By instituting the republics as political units and by creating national elites, Soviet rule helped to create quasi-nations, albeit at a sub-state level. Broadly, this policy of indigenizing the party state was a success. Ukrainian membership of the Ukrainian Communist Party, for example, increased from 24% to 52% between 1922 and 1927, while Kazakh membership of that republic's party grew from 8% to 53% between 1924 and 1933. Yet, there were limits to Moscow's support for nation-building. The Kurds, for example, were never recognized as a nation, and the degree of autonomy a nation might enjoy depended on Moscow. Abkhazia, for example, had its full republican status rescinded in 1931. Moreover, at the center, Russians, and more broadly, Slavs, continued to enjoy a preponderance of key positions in the political, military, and security apparatuses. Nevertheless, the state-sponsored policy of nation-building through conflating language, culture, territory, 
and a quota-based set of state and party structures was a great success. Footnote 121. This was particularly evident in the sphere of popular education and the promotion of literacy and print culture in native languages. Alphabets were devised for people who had no written language. Schools which taught in local languages were opened. By 1927, 82% of schools in Ukraine used Ukrainian. Native intelligentsias were created by giving them preferential access to higher education and professional positions. Hundreds of Soviets were created for minority nationalities that lived within autonomies where a different, non-Russian nationality was dominant. In the Far East, China and Koreans had their own autonomies, schools, and publications. This emphasis on national self-expression did not rule out conflict. The Tatars, for example, favoured updating Arabic as the written medium of their language, whereas Muslims in Azerbaijan and the North Caucasus pressed for a Latin script. Moscow supported the latter, seeing Latinization as a means to undermine the power of Muslim clerics, but neo-Arabists in Kazan waged a counter-challenge in 1926 and 27. Footnote 122. Moscow genuinely encouraged national diversity, but this did not mean that it considered all cultures to be equal. Firmly committed to an evolutionist view of social development, it had little compunction in attacking elements of Islam it considered backward. In the last analysis, the policy of nation-building was on Moscow's terms, and following Stalin's revolution from above, the tensions between the institutionalization of nationality within a federal structure and the centralization of economic and political power in a unitary party state would become much more evident. The Limits of NEP In recent years, NEP has been the subject of considerable debate. During the Perestroika era of Mikhail Gorbachev in the 1980s, Many argued that NEP could have delivered balanced economic growth at a rate which matched that which was actually achieved by the crash industrialization of the first five-year plan. Following the fall of the Soviet Union, the argument swung the other way, with historians arguing that NEP was doomed to collapse under the weight of its contradictions. While one does not have to subscribe to the idea that there is an absolute contradiction between plan and market, it is clear that NEP was a deeply contradictory system. From the first, it proved vulnerable to crises, and as it evolved, the temptation to use command administrative methods to intervene in the workings of the market became irresistible. Yet in 1928, NEP was not in terminal crisis. Grain procurement was certainly a serious problem, yet a change in the price of grain relative to other agricultural goods would have influenced the propensity of peasants to grow and market grain. The problem was that even increased grain sales could not generate the surplus required to sustain the rate of industrialization to which the Stalin leadership had become committed especially following the war scare of 1927. Ludicrously ambitious though the targets of the first five-year plan became, threatening external and domestic pressures dictated that growth be rapid. 
Externally, the situation created by the Versailles Peace Settlement had left the Soviet Union vulnerable to hostile powers, and fear of invasion powered the conviction of the leadership that the Soviet Union must build her economic and military strength as quickly as possible. Internally, the revival of the peasantry and the market set in train social and economic dynamics that, to a considerable extent, eluded the control of the party state and strengthened the ideological perception that class enemies were in the ascendant. Together, these external and internal pressures dictated that the overriding political tasks must be rapid industrialization, the modernization of agriculture, and the rapid expansion of defense capability. If, objectively, NEP could not deliver the rapid growth wanted by the Stalin leadership, the decision to abandon it was nevertheless more an ideological than a pragmatic one. Both the left opposition and the Stalinist leadership were convinced that kulaks were holding the towns to ransom, and that if NEP continued, the Soviet state was in danger of becoming engulfed by petty bourgeois forces. The deep structure of Bolshevik ideology, the sense that all policies served either to strengthen bourgeois or proletarian forces, made a break with NEP likely sooner rather than later. However, this emphatically did not mean that ideology dictated the violent dekulakization, wildly escalating planning targets, the terror and forced labor that Stalin would actually unleash. And that brings us to the end of this chapter. This chapter has had a few moments where, again, I think it's always worth reading things critically. I'm reading this book because I'm looking to get a little bit more context on the events, and I think it's useful to hear about some of the conditions that were being dealt with and why those would have shaped decisions in one way or another. But some of the conclusions that get presented, especially when they get presented as fact, can be concerning. Some people flagged that from the previous episode there was a reference to the foundations of Leninism being plagiarized, which, from looking it up, does not actually seem to be true, and seems to be a claim that was made relatively recently that does not have much validity to it. And that's a more factual-based one, but for instance, in the reading just now, it feels a little strange to say that the communists in Germany should have worked with the socialists that ended up being led by Hitler in the same sub-chapter as where it's pointed out that telling the Chinese communists to work with Chiang Kai-shek was a bad idea. It feels like you could maybe draw parallels to these and see why using nationalism as a motivating factor doesn't mean that you should always use nationalism and can always use nationalism to push a communist agenda. It is in fact a very delicate and fraught thing. In particular, I think there's also an odd strain of talking about how basically presenting the case that Trotsky should have been the one leading the Bolsheviks in this time, or that he was the true successor or whatever, whatever way you want to sum up the kind of implication being made. But because it's a history book, we're only going to see the events 
of how things went, and things went pretty poorly, for reasons that are not entirely because of things the Bolsheviks did. But it means that you don't really have to think about the what-if of... What if Trotsky was in charge? What would he have done that would be any different? Or what would have happened if the communists tried to work more with the democratic socialists of Germany? And I am certainly not qualified to do those what ifs, but gesturing at those as being alternatives feels a little bit simplistic when you don't have to tease out what those alternatives will actually look like, because you're only analyzing the events that did happen and pointing out what they did go wrong and what problems they did cause. Which, to be fair, caused real problems that are worth gesturing at and pointing out. But there's a strange kind of assertion being made as if by analyzing this history, it's clear what should have been done, then gets extrapolated as if people in this situation should have known it. (laughs) In a similar way, much is said about the Bolsheviks being paranoid about being undermined, even though that there are so many examples of ways in which foreign powers were trying to undermine the Bolsheviks, it seems strange to call that paranoia just because, in retrospect, you can tell where the foreign elements were and weren't. We're moving into the final stretch of this book, and I'm curious what kind of conclusive concluding thoughts the author will have once we get to there. If you have any questions, comments, corrections, or suggestions, you can email leftistreading at gmail.com or contact the show on Twitter at leftistreading. This show is hosted on the Abnormal Mapping Network. You can go to abnormalmapping.com to find this and lots of other leftist podcasts. There is in fact a new one called Around the Long Fire that's going through Icelandic sagas, and that seems pretty fun so far. They've just started going through the saga of the Valsungs, which I probably mispronounced, and I've been enjoying that so far. Our intro and outro music is Decisions by Eric Medias. You can find lots of his work on soundimage.org. That's all for this week. Thank you for listening, and keep reading.